Hello, friends. Welcome to episode six of the Sports Walk with Brett and Steven on 91.7 KVRX Austin HD1 and HD2. Like always, whether you're listening live on 91.7 KVRX or are listening to us asynchronously, asynchronously on Spotify later, we greatly appreciate you taking the time to listen to what we have to say about football over the next hour. This week will differ just a little bit from the other episodes. The first 10 minutes will be a pre-recorded interview of quarterback guru Quincy Avery, done by myself and Maya Taylor on the ever-evolving perceptions of black quarterbacks in the NFL. So let's get into that real quick. Haskins is no joke as well. I just find him to be more of a runner than a thrower. Frankly, uh, forget the, the sympathy tour. Cam Newton has never really cared about anyone other than Cam Newton, and that doesn't mean he shouldn't be given the opportunity, but he, he, he's brought this franchise down. I guess he's going to be precise passing. Can he put the ball in the tight windows? Can he be the type of quarterback in the NFL? If he doesn't make it a quarterback, you have a great fallback. But, but he has to buy in. First thing you got to, we've got to figure out is the football intelligence, how quickly he picks things up. Do I have someone on my staff that can help him work to consistently improve his footwork? Critics in the media have said these things about black quarterbacks from Colin Kaepernick to Lamar Jackson. Yes, these stereotypes and double standards still exist to this day. The quarterback position is much more diverse than it's been in the past, but black quarterbacks still have a long way to go. I'm Brett Hintz. And I'm Maya Taylor. This is the Reporting Sports Podcast. Today, we'll be joined by renowned quarterback guru Quincy Avery to discuss the evolving perceptions of black quarterbacks, particularly in the NFL. Once a college coach and athlete, Quincy moved back to Atlanta to pursue his dream of becoming a private quarterback coach for some of the best recruits in the nation. Quincy now boasts an impressive quarterback coaching resume that includes working with the likes of several talented black quarterbacks like Deshaun Watson, Tyrod Taylor, Dwayne Haskins, Jalen Hurts, and dozens more. Through his lessons, he has helped generate $13.5 million in scholarship money for his quarterbacks and has also been an integral part in helping 140 D1 and D2 athletes receive scholarships. Quincy, thanks so much for joining us. What's going on? I appreciate you guys having me. So uh, our first question is, there's been a record uh, 10 black quarterbacks that started in week one of the NFL season, and the league's last two MVPs in Lamar Jackson and Patrick Mahomes are also black. Russell Wilson is cooking this season as well. And some say we're entering the age of the black quarterback. But of course, this has been a long time coming because of the barriers that black quarterbacks have faced. Some of our listeners may be unaware of the stereotypes and prejudice placed on black quarterbacks today. Could you break some of those down for us? Um, I think it's a lot of the stereotypes that we, we see um, in this country, they think that uh, oftentimes think that black quarterbacks are not um, equipped to be the decision makers that you need to run an organization. Don't know if they can be leaders of men. Um, they question their ability to lead a team um, in, in the way in which they would like a quarterback to. And a lot of it is not necessarily framed through the lens of, we don't think this person is qualified because they are black. It's because mm-hmm. oftentimes the way people have seen the position has been through somebody who they looked at at the iconic position as somebody who was white. So all the things that that person who was white did, the guys who are coming up today don't necessarily do those things and don't feel like they should have to be fit into that stereotype or doing things the exact way that other people did them before. And that causes a lot of people who are decision makers to question if they can do it at all because they're not doing it in the way that previous generations did it. And essentially, they're just saying, do it like old white guys. So when you say that, do you just mean like, you know, we see more black QBs, they're more mobile or whatever, they have a different style of play. Is that what you're saying when you say do it like old white guys? No, I'm talking about, I mean, that, that part too, but more so what they wear to their interview, right? What they do when they come into a meeting room. What are they doing when it's time to meet with the GM, the head coach, 
right? Like, how did he sit down? What are the words that he chose to use, right? All those things create situations in which they may look at him differently. And it might not seem like a lot, like you would say, well, he's still got the opportunity to play in the NFL. But if you go in the NFL and you're the difference between a first round pick and a fourth round pick, the amount of chances you get in order to be successful, um, those are very different. So um, just just in order to see us in the same way that they see white quarterbacks. At like the NFL level, um, there's there's not enough black quarterbacks and because there's enough black quarterback coaches. Because there's not enough black quarterback coaches, there's not going to be many black backup quarterbacks. The reason that is, is because typically it's based on who does the quarterback coach have a good relationship with. And that has so much more to do with just your ability to play football. It's your ability to say things to the starting quarterback that you can be like another coach. And they'll only do that if they trust you. You find yourselves doing similar things. You go out and hang out with them. Like all those things come into play. And those backup quarterbacks, typically down the road, find themselves being quarterback coaches. And then those quarterback coaches turn into the play callers and the head coaches. So um, the representation is very important for seeing how it's going to shape the position in the future. All right. We, we need to do a better job in terms of getting black quarterback coaches in a position where they can um, be there and be somebody that you can talk to or you can echo how you feel. Because I have black quarterbacks in the league who will be the only black person in a quarterback room. And that's day for day after day. Some of the best quarterbacks in the world. Um, in fact, all the black quarterbacks that I train are the only black quarterbacks, are black people in their rooms as quarterbacks. That goes for Deshaun, Jalen, Josh Dobbs. Um, yeah, those guys are, are it. So when you don't have people who look like you, who you can talk to, it creates a unique and a different situation. Yeah, and I was certainly going to ask you about that because I was, I was going to ask you because across the league, there are several career backup quarterbacks like Colt McCoy, Chase Daniel, Brian Hoyer. And after they prove that they aren't capable of handling a starting job, they often get the luxury of remaining in the league as a backup for several years. And oftentimes, as we've seen it play out with the Colin Kaepernick situation and even the Cam Newton situation this past offseason where teams were like, they were reluctant to sign them. We see that black quarterbacks, they, aren't, they generally aren't granted a second chance to play out their careers as backups. And I was going to ask you, you know, you spoke about why that is generally because a lot of the quarterback coaches are white and they get that relationship. So do you think that's going to change over time now that we're seeing a lot more black quarterbacks just that are in amongst the elite are they in that elite tier? Can you see that changing? No, I don't see it changing. People are allowing black quarterbacks to be elite black quarterbacks because you have to let the best of the best do that thing. You don't have to let the average black quarterbacks be average in the NFL. And when that changes, that's when we'll start to see more of a shift. Um, it's, it's, it's not about, I think people, and it's easy for us to do this, and we do it kind of at all levels. The people at the far ends of things are the people who we notice. We notice the best of the best. We notice the worst quarterbacks, right? But you don't see a lot of black people represented in that middle and that average, that median. Um, so that that's going to be the shift that is needed. Um, and I've seen that you've also spoken in the media 
like about how your role as a private coach allows you the ability to speak freely about racial issues in America without fearing backlash from an athletic director or a team owner. And I was one, I was wondering, do you feel that players and coaches ability to fully speak out about racial issues? Do you feel like those are somewhat limited due to this, the fact that they have a, an athletic director or a, a team owner breathing down their back? And if so, just how problematic do you think that can be? I, they definitely feel it and they definitely don't say things that they may want to say. Um, due to the job that they have and the things that um, may be acceptable to the people who are above them in their organizations, whether it's at the NFL level or at the college level. Um, and it, it is problematic because these are the people who a lot of people both on campuses at college level um, and in your cities at an NFL level are looking to. Um, and I think that they could be helpful if they were provided the space in order to speak their mind and push conversations in the right direction. Yeah, you know, a lot of progress has been made um, in society, but of course we still have a long way to go just based on what we've seen this year. Um, I know you worked closely with Dwayne Haskins and, you know, seeing him get benched, how, like what, how did that make you feel? And, you know, how do you think that that illustrates kind of the larger ongoing problems that are going on? I felt frustrated when Dwayne got benched. The reason being is because I know that he was making improvements and strides. Um, but it, it tied directly into what I was saying about not having that representation in the room. There'd be situations that just wouldn't be something that would make him feel comfortable or want to go into a room where he'd be the only black guy. And I think those times or opportunities to be in those rooms gives people the perception that you're working hard or you're doing the things that they want you to do. When you could be doing those things at home, but you're not be building the relationship with the coach where you're saying, yeah, Dwayne might be struggling a little bit right now, but I know he's been working on boom, 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 because he was in the room with me working on it, right? Although we could have been working on those very same things at home alone or in a different room in the building, he doesn't get that benefit of the doubt because he didn't necessarily feel comfortable, comfortable around the people who are in that room. Thank you so much, Quincy. Uh, you offered really great insight and we love the work that you're doing. I really appreciate you guys. Uh, thank you for reaching out. So there's a Quincy Avery interview. There's an absolute blast to go interview him as he worked closely with Deshaun Watson, Jalen Hurts, Tyrod Taylor, and a ton of other professional quarterbacks while also being super intelligent about issues that affect them. But anyways, now that we got that over with, let's get into what we did over the weekend and whatnot. So Stephen, what'd you do over the weekend? Anything interesting? I finally spent a weekend without football. And I cannot tell you how relieving it was. I love football, don't get me wrong, but I think we're kind of getting to that point of the semester. Classes are piling up. We've got finals just on the other, just on the other side of Thanksgiving break. Thanksgiving breaks that milestone that we're all working toward. And so I hate to say it, but I feel like it's getting a little bit old, but it's not getting <laughs> too old to talk about. Oh yeah, for sure. This weekend was I finally got to be released from the stress grips of Texas football and also Cowboy football. It was a rare weekend during football season where both of them had a bye week at the same time. So I actually got to enjoy some football this week without actually having to stress over some of my favorite teams, which honestly, they take similar paths in stressing me out most of the time. They both like they both kind of like do the same thing where they're like supposed to be good at the beginning of the year and the Cowboys and Longhorns like both. And then they ended up like halfway through the year. They're like the laughing stock of like everyone else. So it was nice to have like a, a short little reprise from that. And yeah, I definitely feel you on the school thing. Like, man, I got so many things piled up. It's about that time where all the final projects are coming to be due. And then you got final exams to think about. 
And then if you're a journalism major like you and I, you probably got like some final, some papers that you have to, or some articles that you have to write for some classes that are long and stressful. And yeah, it's just a long, it's just a stressful time, especially whenever, you know, like I said, school is wrapping up and we got just so many deadlines to meet. And yeah, like I said, I just, I feel you on that. It's a, it's very, it's a very stressful time. I spent 15 hours over the course of the last two days editing a documentary. Why I'm in a documentary class when I really don't know how to edit, I have no idea. But I spent <laughs> the last two days spend, spending 15 hours editing that thing. And I spent the previous three days learning how to use Premiere Pro. <laughs> That's awful. What class is that for? News documentaries. Man, let me if not. You're, if, if you're great at making documentaries, I definitely recommend it. If you've never really made one before, I'm not sure I recommend it as much. You spent nine hours doing that? I spent I spent nine hours doing that on Sunday. I spent six hours doing that on Monday. Wow. So, yeah, we were supposed to record yesterday. I felt, yeah, he texted me. I felt the same way. I was like, man, my brain is pretty fried because I was working on a, on a paper about Alex Trebek for reporting sports. And then I had another, another assignment due for astronomy. I actually had an exam for astronomy yesterday and I had like, you know, hella other stuff to do. I was, so my brain, I was in the same boat. My brain was fried, but I couldn't imagine doing nine hours of editing. That's a lot of editing. Oh my goodness. Like how long is the documentary that you're making? Well, it was supposed to be between eight and 10 minutes, but uh, it ended up being 15. So we're going to be cutting this bad boy down. We're not done yet. We're not out of the woods yet, baby. <laughs> so, so wait, it takes, it takes you nine hours or nine plus hours to edit a 15 minute documentary. Dude, I told you, I've literally never edited before. This is the first <laughs> time I've ever done that. I had no idea what I was doing. Most of the time, I was just I was just looking at YouTube videos of how to do different things. Wait, did you never take uh, reporting images? Or what was that class that we all had to take as, did, as yeah. sophomores? No, no, I took images, but I just ended up with a, with a partner who was like a really, really good editor. Uh, so I see. we just like discussed... We just discuss like the story format and like what we think it should look like and what the plot point should be. And then that person just went in and manually did everything while I looked over their shoulder. So, you know, I've been, I've been, I've been cheating my way out to this point, but it finally came back and got me. And uh, now I'm here to pay a penance. Yeah. I was, I would have been the same way as you if, if the pandemic didn't hit for my, right before the second project, we're like, we were about to like, start recording and stuff like that last semester that's whenever COVID hit and so we all had to we all had to like switch up everything that we were going to do and I ended up having to like record and edit and then like do all my own stuff like through iMovie and it definitely took me forever like to figure out how to do it the first time I remember the first time I did it but now now I edit this show and I edit like I feel like I edit a lot of stuff like I do the trailer for this and I do like some other stuff for some other classes so it's a grueling experience but once you like get familiar with it it's a pretty good like skill to have I would say well, at least we can at least we can edit all the stuff we're gonna have to say about Texas. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Let's talk about it. So we got into so I I said I think I I, uh, I wrote it down. Yeah, I wasn't sure how we were gonna fill like twenty to twenty five minutes of time talking about Texas football this week, considering we're taking we're taking on Kansas, who is probably if not the worst Power Five or the, the worst football team in the Power Five this year. Uh, but our boy, Tom Herman, he made sure that we had plenty to talk about this week, even though we're coming off a bye and we're going against Kansas with that press conference that he had yesterday. He spent the entire press conference talking about his job security pretty much. He talked about some injuries for a little bit, I know, but almost the entirety of the press conference he was talking about is job security. And honestly, whenever you're a head coach in college football and that's what you choose to spend the bulk of your time on in your press conference, 
to me, that's whenever we should start sounding the alarms. So, you know, and for the past few weeks, I've speculated on whether Chris Del Conte's media silence regarding uh, Tom Herman and Texas football, whether it holds any significance towards human uh, Herman's uh, future job security. And, you know, he finally talked about this week and I was honestly surprised that he was even asked the question and I'll read off some notable quotes uh, before we dive into what we think about them. So, and I'm sure I know, you know, what was said, but just for the listeners, cause I'm where you, you were there, right? Uh, believe it or not, I was not I had a test yesterday. Oh, wow. But, you got out of the presser, but our girl Maya was definitely on top of that. And I did read the highlights afterwards. Sure. All right. I'll read them out right now. So Herman, here's Herman on the fact that Texas AD Chris Del Conte tweets about everything except for football lately. He said, I'm not going to worry about a 50 year old man's tweet count. And then he also said, we understand the difference between vocal minorities and people who make decisions in their beliefs. I couldn't be more aligned with our athletic director, my boss, who we meet with constantly, who has assured me of his support and support of university leadership and has even commended me and our staff and our program for how we have handled the craziest year in college football history. We've gone as far to say he's even offered, you know, if a recruit wants to talk to him, give him, give that recruit his number. So what I just wanted, I wanted to just unpack that a little bit just for people who are listening, just because I don't know, I, I don't, I don't know what to believe and I don't really know how much stock we should put into it. What do you think, Steven? I mean, even if, even if, I mean, of, of, of course, of course, Herman isn't telling the full truth here. You know, what coach is going to come out and say, oh yeah, well, we've got a really serious problem. I know he's lost complete faith in the program whenever he's asked a question like that. No coach is going to say that, especially not the coach at a place like Texas. I mean, you know, Mike McCarthy wouldn't say that for the Cowboys. Tom Herman wouldn't say that for Texas. So we have, so this is something that we kind of have to take at face value. We understand that there's something, you know, there are far deeper issues underlying here. And Herman, one thing that Herman's pretty good at is kind of avoiding, um, is, is kind of avoiding the really negative quote that's going to come down hard on him. I mean, he handled, he handled these questions pretty well. They weren't exactly you know, the softball questions. Oh, what do you think about Kansas this week? You know, oh, you know, tough game this week. Uh, all that stuff. How's the big 12 looking? You know, no, he's being asked about job security and no coach is just going to say, well, I know they don't have job security. You know, last year, Chad Morris at Arkansas, who might be one of the worst power five coaches in the history of football. He even said, whenever they were going to play Mississippi state, you know, well, we're going to go win a football game this week. And at that point they hadn't Arkansas hadn't won an sec game in like two and a half years or something like that. No, yeah. coach is just going to say, well, we're probably going to lose, but let's just, let's just make pretend for a second. Let's, let's say that he really is telling the absolute truth with this quote. And he couldn't be more aligned with the athletic director and the athletic director has commended him for how he's handling the craziest year in college football history. And he's even offering recruits. Chris Del Conte is personally offering recruits his phone number if they want to talk about issues. All that is, is an effort to save face. That's, that's just an effort to save recruits. You know, if, if, if the athletic director is reaching out to recruits directly, that to me is a far bigger problem than whatever, whatever other things are being mentioned. 
because that means that the athletic director has such little faith in the coach to either win games or keep his job or win enough games to keep his job that he feels like he has to get involved in the recruiting process directly. I'm not going to read into that too much because unfortunately I don't have sources on the inside that are telling me everything that I'd like to know, but I think Mm -hmm. this is something that we can at least judge on the surface. Yeah. I mean, and with the situation, it's very weird, no matter what you believe, just because I know that Herman had to do, I mean, he basically had to do it. Like you said, if you're a coach and your back is against the wall and you're in this little, and you're in this weird situation where you probably know that you're on the hot seat, of course, what your, your, your best plan of action is to come out and say that, you know, you have the full backing of your athletic director, who's your boss. And even if that isn't true, that might be the best thing for him to do. I mean, it probably would be the thing that I would do if I was a coach and and people weren't sure around the program, whether my job security was intact. But I mean, just either way, because like, say he's telling the truth. If he's telling the truth, to me, that's a reflection, a poor reflection on Chris Del Delcani. Uh, just because, like you said, I know that he has, he, he has to do it to save recruiting and, you know, just to do it. And, you know, you know, just to save for the betterment of the program, but say that he is telling the truth and Chris Del has had these conversations with him. I'm wanting to know what exactly it is that has inspired this confidence that Herman is talking about. That's, that's the thing that troubles me if what he's saying is true. Uh, but honestly, I don't, I, I really don't know. And I don't know if there's really any way for any of us to know whether Herman's telling the truth or not just, you know, just there's no way for all and the only person that knows whether it's the truth is Chris O'Connor and, and Tom Herman but I mean just the, for the fact the fact that he came out and said that it, it was wild to me but you can look at it on the positive side and you can say you know maybe desperation could be a good thing but I mean when it all in all I think the self-vote of confidence is more reflective of a coach that knows he's on the hot seat but you, you can never you can never really tell what this kind of thing will do for a team until you just see it. So, like I said, maybe this is what causes Herman to, to, you know, to get out of his shell, to try new things, to open things up. If he knows that he's on the hot seat, you know, then maybe he'll do it. But it, it and like I, I saw this tweet that Jeff Ketchum, he tweeted, he said, it's a hell of a thing when a head coach has to give himself a vote of confidence because his boss won't come out in public and do it himself. And, you know, it's, it's, it just, it just, it looks weird. That's all. That's, that's what I have to say about the situation is that no matter what you believe, if, if, if it, whether it's true or not true, the entire situation and the fact that Herman came out and spent a majority of his press conference talking about this, like I know he was asked a question. It's just weird to me, but he was also asked about the urban, the urban Meyer rumors. And this is what, this is what bothered me more than the, the job security rumors. Uh, so it's not a direct quote that I have here, but he said the Urban Meyer rumors hurt the Longhorns in recruiting because opposing schools just hit print whenever they see that and they show it to recruits to use against Texas. He also went into describing how difficult it is to fight these reports by unnamed sources. And wh- what he said was, you know, these 16 year old kids are very impressionable. And when they see things like this, you know, it, it's it's bad for recruiting. This is this is the quote that I have a problem with. And I understand he was asked the question and I understand like, yes, these 16 year old kids are indeed very impressionable. But what these 16 year old kids that he's trying to recruit, what they're also impressionable to is winning football. You know, Urban Meyer rumors, it isn't what caused Texas to lose to TCU. It wasn't necessarily poor coaching either. Like, I know there was a lot of bad luck that went into that game, like the Keontae Ingram fumble on the goal line. But a lot of it is reflecting or it's reflective of poor coaching. 
you know, so that's that's my issue that I take with with him saying that these 16 year old kids are very impressionable. These like what they're impressionable to is the is the consistency of the inconsistent results, the underwhelming results. Like they speak louder than an unnamed source from Orange Bloods like ever could to these recruits. Like, I promise you as a recruit, I, they're not. I, I understand he makes a valid point whenever, you know, these the, he says that these recruits are shown things by other recruiters, like whenever, you know, they're on the recruiting trail, which is true. But they wouldn't be shown these things if he was if we weren't in year four of just mediocreness. And you know these. And, and whenever you look at Herman's tenure, you got to think about the product on the field. Has that been what we've what was expected when he came in? No. The development of players once they got here. I mean, we've had no issue getting recruits here. But whenever they do get here, are they developed? Or would 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 we say that they're developed the right way? No. And getting guys to the NFL consistently. No, he's failed in every single area. So that's what's to blame for poor recruiting and to spend a lot of time talking about what Urban Meyer and the Urban Meyer rumors have done for your recruiting. And I know, like I said, I know he was asked the question, but to me, there should be probably at least a little bit more accountability. I don't know. What do you think? The Urban Meyer rumors more generally kind of trouble me just because I've tried to track the Urban Meyer rumors back before. Like I've, I've, I've tried to do my due diligence and my due research and find out just where the Urban Meyer to Texas rumors originated from. And I have not been able to find like a single credible source that just came out and said, yes, like this, this is a possibility. This to me is very reminiscent of 2013. Whenever I'm sure you remember this, there were all the rumors that Nick Saban was going to come to Texas. Texas yeah. was going to get Nick Saban to replace Mac Brown, and Texas was going to, you know, have have yet another dynasty after a few years of mediocrity. So the Meyer rumors do trouble me in that regard, but you're absolutely right. Whenever you say that, you know, the underwhelming results on the field are speaking louder than an unnamed source, especially in the minds of kids being recruited. You know, why is it that the rich always get richer? Why is it that Alabama and Clemson recruit unbelievably well? Because they win a lot. They win a lot of football games and they put more players in the NFL than anybody else. That speaks volumes to 16, 17-year-old five-star kids with almost superhuman abilities that have dreams of playing at the next level. But if you're a five-star recruit and you see how well Texas has recruited in years past and you see the overall just lack of NFL talent that's produced, what motivation do you have to go to a school that you don't necessarily know can get you out? Exactly. When you understand, you know, like you, if, if, you know, you're a, you're a, let's say you're a top 15, top 20 recruit, you know, these are the same guys that Clemson and Alabama are recruiting. You know, these are the same dudes that they're trying to poach, except Clemson and Alabama's guys are getting out. Some guys that you may be rated higher than on the ESPN 300. And so now you're you're asked with you're you're faced with this question of why am I going to go to this place? Am I that in love with this school? And you know, I think Texas got really, really lucky with Sam Ellinger because they really didn't have to recruit Sam. Sam recruited himself. You know, Sam was going to play at Texas regardless 
of who the head coach was. Sam was, you know, a diehard Longhorn. Whenever Texas was five and seven under Charlie Strong, he was a diehard Longhorn his first year under Tom Herman. There was no way that this guy was going to go anywhere else other than Texas. You know, like I looked up his recruiting profile the other day and I saw that I think he had a visit to Florida State or something like that. But other yeah, but he was that, coming the whole time. Nobody really bothered with him because everybody knew he's going to Texas. Yeah. So Texas got very, very lucky in that regard. But if you look, uh, but if you look elsewhere, I think that right now, especially among recruits, there's an overwhelming concern for coming to Texas. I remember I saw a, there was there was an Oklahoma or a, a former Texas recruit who flipped to Oklahoma a few weeks ago. And I saw he was quoted as saying, this isn't a direct quote, but it was something along the lines of, well, the guys at Oklahoma know what they're doing. The guys at Oklahoma get guys out and they, and they, they win conference championships. Yeah. That absolutely is something that is resonating in the minds of all these 16, 17 year old kids. Yeah. And look, if I get it in Herman's position, he, and he's correct in saying that these unnamed sources that he think he said, like from orangefans.com, like, and you, you said it earlier, you went and looked for like, you know, some actual credible stuff whenever it comes to urban Meyer, a lot of it, it's like, it comes from these, these chat rooms and these message boards that have like these like small sources and Herman is correct. Like those, those kind of things aren't, they're not good for recruiting and the, the, those things can be shown to recruits. And so I'm not going to, I'm not like, I'm not saying that he's not correct in his, in saying that, but like, what like I said, the, the problem that I have with what he said was the fact that it's not, it wasn't, it's not these rumors that it's causing this drop off in recruiting. And like you said earlier, like what has Tom Herman shown at Texas other than beating like Georgia and winning and winning bowl games, what has he done at Texas to show these recruits like that you should come play here and that whenever you do come play here, we're going to develop you into an NFL talent. Because what he's shown to me, at least, and I'm sure in the minds of recruits all over the country, like even five-star quarterbacks, you know, they, they see that players come here and oftentimes they don't develop into what they potentially could develop into. And I'm sure a lot of that, a lot of that doesn't have to do with coaching. A lot of that is just the player not being as good as we thought he was. But I mean, a, a lot of it does fall into coaching. And so whenever you have a consistent track record of losing to average teams like TCU, West Virginia's, you know, the, the Kansas States, and you do this every single year and you, and you show these, and you show that to recruits that you're not going to be consistently in the big 12 championship game. And you're not going to be consistently in the college football playoff picture. These recruits, they take notice of that. And, and to me, like, like I said, my biggest issue is that I promise they take, they take bigger issue with that fact being true with the fact that they won't be developed properly. And the fact that, you know, the track record of, of, of the lack of NFL talent being produced, they noticed that a lot more than they noticed the urban Meyer rumors on orangebloods.com. And those urban Meyer rumors simply wouldn't exist if the coaching was adequate. And a lot of, and a lot of, we've, we've even seen it in the past few weeks, even though we in winning efforts, Texas football, even when they win games, they don't look well coached. You, you go out, and I said this on uh, Nikhil's show last week, it's confusing as a Texas fan because they go out and they win these games and they're like, they have a nice little four-game winning streak going. But throughout any of these wins, have you really thought to yourself like, man, Texas looks like a real, a really well-coached unit right now. Like they, this is like what good – this is what a well-coached football team looks like. No, a lot of these games they've won – 
and they've played poorly almost the entire time. They've just won on mistakes that were uh, that happened for the other team. So even in winning efforts, they're not showing these recruits that, you know, this is a place where coaching is going to is going to separate you. So that's my biggest issue with it. I mean, that's I mean, I don't know if there's any if there's much more to say about it. But like I said, if, if you if you coach better and you and, you know, you did a lot of things better as a head coach, just, you know, on the field, then you wouldn't have these issues with the Urban Meyer reports. I played high school baseball and whenever I, in my senior year, we got this new coach and he would call us in for these Monday meetings. And I remember one day he, he, he told us there are four things that can happen in any sport that you play. You can play well and win. You can play well and lose. You can play poorly and win. You can play poorly and lose. What we've we we're really yet to see Texas play well and win. We're really yet to see one game where Texas just overwhelms its opponent with its talent and its coaching and its discipline and its resources and everything that has available to it. Yeah, exactly. And you're absolutely right. I've yet to see a game in which we've won even where I'm like, wow, this was a a good day for Tom Herman and the rest of the coaching staff. We really came in with a solid game plan and I was happy with the way we called plays. And like I, I get envious like watching this is why I have like such a big crush on Lincoln Riley and just like Kyle Shanahan and these other good coaches because you can watch games, you can watch them play, and you can go back at the end of it and you can circle back to them. And you're like, you know what? They were a central reason why they were able to be better than the team that they played today. Like their their coaching ability and their play calling is what gave them the advantage. And that's not always, I mean, and I can't remember the last time I watched Tom Herman, who was, you know, supposed to be this offensive mastermind coming out of Ohio State. You know, I, I, I cannot remember the last time I watched a Texas game and I was like, you know what? Like, man, they really schemed the hell out of things on offense today. Like they really did. They really did a great, a great thing on offense. And the, the, the defense has actually been the best part that they've been the best part where we've talked about it in the past, like where Chris Ash, we've came in and we're like, wow, that was a really nice game plan. And he looks like a, like a really, you know, like a really good coach that we might even want to keep around, even if Herman isn't here anymore, but just on the offensive side of thing, where our offensive side of things where Herman makes a lot of the decisions, it's like, you know, like I said, there's not a point where, and like you said, there's not a thing where there's not been a point throughout this season, at least where we're like, you know, we won and we also played really well in a win, you know, but Texas has an opportunity to do that this week though. Whenever they go against Kansas, uh, Kansas, like I've said multiple times over the past few weeks, they are awful. They're one of the worst. Uh, they're one of the worst teams across all of college football. It's between them and Vanderbilt whenever it comes, probably whenever it comes to power five schools, and they're bad. So do you have any what's your what's your prediction for just how bad this game will get or or do you think there's a chance that Texas could somehow squander this one? I always think there's a chance that Texas can squander a game. I saw a uh, I saw a tweet yesterday by Bob Ballou of CBS Sports. Texas has the smallest margin of victory against Kansas over the last 3 meetings of any Big 12 team. You look at you look at 20, 2018, the year that Texas went to the Sugar Bowl. Texas almost blew that game. I remember they ended up winning 24-17, but I was I was fortunate enough to actually be there in the stadium. And Kansas was an onside kick away from really making some madness happen late in the game. Yeah. Uh, last year, I think everybody remembers uh, Kansas actually having the lead with five seconds to go. And it, and it took Cameron Dicker hitting an incredibly composed walk-off game winning field goal 
to win the game and, and avoid probably the worst loss in the history of the program. Yeah, like Kansas has been a thorn in Texas's side in some way, shape, or form. And if we're being honest, I can't really figure out why. Because you know, if it was if it was a one-off, if there was just one close game or one loss, and then you go back to these blowouts because you understand what the talent margin is, you could say, oh well, you know, they just weren't prepared. Oh, you know, they were poorly coached for this instance. But yeah, we're seeing close games span across two coaches now. You know, like yeah. like Charlie Strong losing to Kansas was what ultimately did him in. That was the reason that he was fired. And I've talked to a couple of players, a couple of former players, who all basically said, "Yeah, we knew Charlie was done after the Kansas game. We just knew we just knew that was going to happen." Um, and so you'd think that that might be a one-off, except with Herman we've seen the exact same thing. Even his, you know, blowout win in 2017 really wasn't that great. I mean, yeah, you know, the defense gave up some points late and the offense actually finally looked good, but it, it still wasn't an awesome win. It was, it was a decent win, but you know, you're, you're seeing, you're seeing the, the least winning or the, the least winning program in power five hang with, a program that has what, like the third most wins all time mm-hmm. or something yeah. like that in Texas. And I really can't figure out why, because we can't isolate it and say, Oh, this coach was the problem or this game was the problem or the players weren't ready this time. There's something deeper there and I can't figure out what it is, but there's something deeper there. That <laughs> there's yet. the, there's the Kansas curse. I guess we don't, we don't know what it is, but Kansas does usually give Texas football trouble and it's weird just because, like you said, Kansas is historically, at least for for as long as I can remember, has just been awful. And but also for as long as I can remember, I always like have seen Kansas on the schedule. Even back whenever I was like, like back in like middle school, I remember seeing Kansas on the schedule. It was like you know, you know, Kansas is an easy win for everyone else, but I know we're gonna go into Lawrence or they're gonna come into Austin, and we're gonna play them closely for three quarters, and we're gonna win by fourteen points. But this week, what what Texas really needs, and I mean, what they have to have, I think. They have to look dominant this week. And I know they're missing guys. I don't know if Jared Wiley's going to play. Cade Brewer might not play. Um, but, you know, this is Kansas, and they are bad. And Texas really needs a performance where, like we talked about, they need a performance where you can actually look back on it and be like, okay, they played well and they won, but they are they they won, but they also played extremely well, like with through the eye test. Like they have to have a performance this week to me just for – just confidence everywhere. I mean, there's so many, there's so many question marks around even what this football team's identity is. They have to come in this week, coming off of a bye week, going against the worst team possibly in college football. They have to have a performance this week where we can, we can, or everyone can look back on it. And especially Chris Elkani can say, okay, they look like a well-coached cohesive unit this week and they they won comfortably. And so if, if that doesn't happen, I mean, I don't, I, I doubt Herman. I mean, I don't know what Herman's future job security will look like, even, you know, they'll, they'll probably win this game, but like they just for, if Herman wants to feel as if like he is going to, he has a strong chance of coming back next year, this has to be a game where they not only win like that, obviously that's the expectation when you go against Kansas, but they also need to look like they are playing Kansas. Yeah, no, absolutely. Herman's in a, Herman's in a blowout or bust position and 
And that's kind of interesting because, you know, it, it's always just been, you know, if Herman can win, that'll be good enough. But since he's been at Texas, Herman hasn't been asked to blow anyone out. Herman hasn't been asked to really blow anyone away. Even in, in 2018, whenever they won all those close games and got to the Sugar Bowl, well, you know, it's a, it, it's okay to win the close games, you know, because winning close games shows grit. You know, it shows toughness. It shows finding a way to win. No, no it doesn't. No, it doesn't. <laughs> it, shows, it shows being bad for three and a half quarters and then getting to the last five, six minutes of the game and going, oh, snap, we got to figure it out. Ah. Yeah. It shows, it shows playing so poorly at one point in the game that you're going to rely on some miraculous, tough, gritted out, nail biting finish at the end to win. But, you know, fi- this whole finding a way to win thing. I agree. Th- there, there is something to it. There's, it, it's not a lot, but it's something. You can look at the NFL and you can see that. You know, like what's going on with the Chargers? They've blown three leads of 17 or more points so far this year. There, th- at some level, you do have to understand how to win. But on another level. It just shows playing so, so poorly at one point in the game that you squander whatever you have or you're fighting to get back into the game late. And that's when, and that's whenever, like, I think you really start to hit the panic button as a Texas fan because, you know, how many of these close games can you win? Because at some point, the close games, the close wins are going to run out. You know, no, no team has just scraped by with close wins and then finally pass the final test at the end of the season. You know, the, the, the most recent example I can think of is Miami in 2017. You remember that, you know, the, (coughs) excuse me, the year that everybody thought the U was back Mm -hmm. and, you know, Manny Diaz's defense was walking around and flashing their chain and, you know, they were leading the nation in turnovers. Well, you know, they, they kind of scraped and clawed by, Every team that they played, no matter how good or how bad they were, you know, they, they scraped by a couple of 500 teams. And then finally, they got to the end of the season. Uh, they got to the end of the season. They climbed all the way up to number two in the rankings. Then they played Pitt. They played Pittsburgh at Pittsburgh. <laughs> no. They got into another close game. They finally lost, and they fell in the rankings pretty substantially. And after that, they played Clemson in the ACC championship game and they just got absolutely demolished. I don't think, I don't think Miami scored a touchdown in that game. Yeah. So, you know, at at some point the luck is going to run out. And at some point, every team that, you know, finds ways to win in close games is going to get exposed. Yeah. And I 100% agree that winning is, and I think we talked about this in the daily Texan group chat, whenever we beat West Virginia, you know, winning is we're not going to apologize for a win. You never will apologize for a win. Like a, like a Vince Lombardi said, winning is not the only thing. It's everything. Maybe that's what he said. I think that's his quote. But, um, you know, we're, even when you back into a win and you look and you look poor in a win like Texas has in the past two weeks, you can always look back on it. And the silver lining is that you won the football game and that's the ultimate goal. But like you said, the, the one score wins and the wins where you where you look not like the better football team for most of the game. Those wins are it's not it's not a very sustainable way to run your football program. And we've seen that not only in college football, but you can look at it even at the professional ranks. Like that's why that's why people believe like, you know, that whenever a team wins just in one score games, like one year that the next year that that's going to run out and they're going to regress because a lot of it is luck. 
Like when you think about it, like the Texas Tech win, that was luck. We got the bounce, a bounce of a ball. Or, I mean, there you can literally just boil it down to a few plays most of the time whenever you have a one-score win. So the the model of consistently winning these games closely or, you know, if you're not if you're not beating your, the teams that you play handily or if you're not beating them by by more than 10 points, you're, you're that model is not very sustainable and you're not going to it's going to regress at some point. And, you know, it, by the way, the ball, by the way, the ball bounces in time, you're going to you're going to end up losing those those one score games. But so, yeah, we've talked about uh, we've talked about Texas football for about 30 or so minutes. So and I know we got quite a bit that we want to talk about with the NFL. So let's move on to some NFL content. And you wanted to talk about uh, Lamar Jackson and just how Lamar Jackson compares to other quarterbacks. So what do you think? I watched Raven. I watched the Ravens and the Pats on Sunday night. It, it was it, it was I'm going to be honest. It was kind of a boring game. I was pretty yeah. I was pretty underwhelmed by it. The first half took forever. I think you gotta get the Patriots on prime time. I think at one point I just said, "Screw this!" I went to go take a shower. I went back, and they were still in the first half, and I was like, "Oh, yeah. oh my gosh!" Like I, <laughs> I, I, I cannot believe what I'm watching here. And then, you know, the the Ravens look good early, and then the Pats jump back and they retook the lead, and you know, all all of a sudden you see Lamar just not playing that well. And I go on Twitter and I see people, you know, starting to kind of lose their minds, you know, Oh, Lamar Jackson. He, he's not really, he's not really as good as everybody thought he was. He's, he's, he's not, he's not the real deal. He's not, he's not the guy for the Ravens. You know, we have, Rating we have, MVP, we have grossly overestimated this guy. What did you think he was going to do? Did you think he was going to go 14 and two every single year and have an MVP caliber season every single year. Did you really think that was going to happen? Is, is that the golden standard that you have to hold this guy to? Well, you know, he's not going to, he's probably not going to win. He's probably not going to get the top overall seed in the AFC this year. So he's, he, he's, he's not good. We can, we can write him off. <laughs> and Lamar didn't play great. I get that. He did. I, I totally agree with that. He did not look, he didn't, he did not look that great at all. You know, I've, I've got stats right here. 24 of 34, 250 yards, two touchdowns, a pick, got sacked twice, had a quarterback rating of 68.3. And we know that yeah. Lamar can be a good quarterback. He's put up he's put up perfect passer ratings before. Mm-hmm. But one thing that kind of troubled me, I got a text from one of my friends. How do you think Lamar compares to Kyler Murray? You know, Kyler, the, the guy who just dropped an absolute – 50-yard Hail Mary dime to DeAndre Hopkins in one of the awesomest throws that I personally have witnessed live. Yeah. And DeAndre Hopkins goes up, makes an incredible catch. Unrelated, but the Cardinals are going to be good. I like yeah. the Cardinals a lot. Those guys are going to those guys are going to be really, really good. Kyler's a special guy. I like what they got going on there. Mm-hmm. But yeah, now now I'm starting to I'm, I'm starting to see and get all these questions. You know, how does how does Lamar really compare? to all the other guys in the league, you know, is he, is he better? Is he worse? Is he a, is he just a product of the system that the Ravens are in? Yeah. 
I just I think it's I think it's really important for everyone to remember. And like you said, like you, we see all these tweets, like is Lamar the real deal? Is he the like we need to remember this guy is like the reigning MVP. Like he is he is a good football player, and this is something that Lamar has had. I mean, he even he was not even he was barely drafted in the first round. Uh, you know, coming off of a, a Heisman winning season in college football, so Lamar has always dealt with sort of an unfair amount of criticism, but it's also, it's, it's a weird, it's a weird line that we have to walk because yes, Lamar Jackson is the reigning MVP. And yes, we know that he's capable of being a top five quarterback in the NFL and like playing at an elite level. But on the other hand, he is playing, he is, he isn't playing like we are expecting a, a reigning MVP to be playing. And so Lamar gets this weird pass from people that I see on social media because I, I know there are some that are like, you know, Lamar Jackson isn't the real deal. But there are others that are like, you know, he's the MVP, like, and, you know, he's this and that, and you shouldn't, you know, he's like slander proof. And it's like, you know, NFL quarterbacks are the most scrutinized. They're, they play the most they, – they get scrutinized more than any player at any other position across almost every major sport. Like, they are the scapegoat most of the time. So, and especially whenever you're Lamar Jackson and you aren't playing well and you are a former MVP, you're going to have something, you're going to have people on social media that are going to be criticizing you. And I think that's completely fair. But then again, like I said, it's a weird line that you have to walk because, you know, he does deserve some of that criticism. But then again, we do need to remember that he is the reigning MVP and that he's also not really playing that bad. You know, it's, it's weird. Well, we have to adjust the elephant in the room. There's definitely a race component here. Oh, yeah. A, A lot of this have to do with the fact that Lamar is black and he's not a traditional Peyton Manning, Tom Brady, you know, drop back, sit in the pocket, go through your progression, have a good offensive line and just wow people away by your arm talent and your decision-making skills. Lamar's not like that. Lamar's different entirely. And we can't judge Lamar by traditional matrices because he's not a traditional quarterback. In fact, he's probably the most untraditional quarterback that we've seen in the modern era. Yeah. Lamar, Lamar is a direct extension of the Ravens run game. He's used differently than anybody. He's used differently than anybody else because the Ravens offense with Lamar, their entire offensive system is predicated around using the quarterback in the run game to create advantageous running numbers, especially in the box. And we even saw that at the end of the Patriots game, you know, they were still trying to run the ball you know, really late, really late in the game because they understand that's just the, the, the best way for them to be successful. That's what they're good at. That's what Lamar's good at. They're trying to play to his strengths. And you see so many teams that are absolutely terrified to take a chance on a quarterback because, oh, well, he doesn't fit our offensive system. He doesn't, he doesn't fit what we're trying to do here. And what I give the Ravens and I give John Harbaugh so much credit for is he saw a special athlete that had slid all the way to the last pick of the first round. And he took a chance on because he saw how special of an athlete this guy was. And he saw the talent margin and he saw the difference and he saw everything that he was able to do in college, especially during his Heisman winning season. And he brought him into Baltimore. And after kind of babying him for a season under Joe Flacco, they changed their entire offense to reflect his strengths. I mean, the stuff that they're running right now in Baltimore all that really is, is a more advanced version of the playbook that he ran at Louisville during his Heisman winning season. It's just a more advanced version of that playbook. It's thicker, it's deeper, it's got a lot more formations, it's got a few more complex reads, but 
all in all, the concept is the same. And so, you know, if you can't change a quarterback, why not just change your concept to reflect the strengths of that quarterback? And exactly. it's worked pretty well. You know, they went 14 and two last season. They're six and three. They're six and three this year, and people are flipping out. Chill. They're mm-hmm. six and three. They're probably still going to make the playoffs. The only reason that they aren't leading the AFC North right now is because the Steelers are having the best season in franchise history. Mm-hmm. You know, everybody just chill. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. They're, and they're, I, they're fine. They're fine. No, yeah, and I, I, I'm so glad that you brought up the the elephant in the room, the fact that he is black, because we talked about it with Quincy in the first ten minutes of the show that that they'll that, they'll, uh, that you'll be listening to, is that you know the black quarterbacks they are they often aren't given the chance to just you know be average or to be anything other than elite. So it's important that you know we give Lamar you know a a, a well rounded. It's okay to criticize him, but it's important, like you said, to to remember that. He isn't the same quarterback that he's not like the like the the prototypical or the stereotypical six four white guy that sits in the pocket and doesn't move. You know, I mean, he's not Tom Brady. He's not Ben Roethlisberger. Like he's he's a different quarterback stylistically. You know, he's very unique. So it's important that we adjust how we criticize him, you know, sort of tailored towards how he plays with his own unique style. But and so, like, and another thing that I've been saying a lot of is these, you know, how does he compare to the other dual threat quarterbacks? You know, how does he, how is he compared to, you know, Deshaun Watson and Kyler Murray and all these guys? Kyler Murray is not a, he's not, a, he's not a true dual threat quarterback. You know, when, when, when you say dual threat quarterback, you think Mike Vick, you think, you know, you, th- you think Lamar Jackson. Yeah. Kyler Murray is a guy who's incredibly quick, incredibly elusive in the pocket, is awesome at extending plays, he's and always looks to well. throw first. Why do yeah. you think he's got 40 to 50 pass attempts in a game? Because yeah. he's sitting in the pocket and he's trying to throw. Running a read option on the goal line and having rushing touchdowns does not qualify you as a, as a dual threat quarterback. And Lamar's getting this comparison to these other guys. And the, well, all of these guys are being compared to one another, another because there's absolutely a, a racial component here, you know, mm-hmm. like the, uh, the, the, uh, I, I think kind of the standard kind of the standard uh, euphemism is, or for, for black quarterbacks, at least, you know, whenever you look at these guys coming out of college is, Oh, well, you know, he's a really athletic runner. You know, he's, he's a good runner. And I heard some less, some people who hadn't maybe watched as much college football as I had back in, 2017 saying about Dwayne Haskins or maybe it was 2018. I can't remember whatever draft class Dwayne Haskins was in. Yeah. Oh, you know, Dwayne Haskins, you know, he's a, he's a good runner. He can move out in space. Dude. No, he's not. Dude. Yes, please. He, he sits in the, he sits in the pocket more than anybody. That dude's <laughs> terrible. He's as if, traditional pocket passer as I've seen. Yeah. But he gets this unfair comparison because he's, he's black. Like there's that because of the color of his skin. Yeah, if you listen to the beginning of the show, if you go back and listen to it whenever it airs, or if you want to go listen to it on Spotify, the opening part of the interview between Quincy Avery that me and Maya did, it's literally Stephen A. Smith saying, you know, I, I view Dwayne Haskins more as a runner and a passer. Dwayne Haskins had like 100 yards rushing throughout his entire senior season at Ohio State. That guy is slow. Like he is like slower. Like he probably is in the bottom third in terms of speed whenever it comes to quarterbacks in the NFL. That guy is not mobile at all. But that's you're absolutely right. That's more of a reflection on how 
you know, they have to deal, deal with the stereotype. And that's why I highly encourage if you're if you're listening to it, if you're listening to the show like in the later hour to go back and listen to it on Spotify, because Quincy Avery does a really, really nice job of explaining why they're perceived this way. It's more of it's a really systemic issue whenever it comes to like who black quarterbacks are surrounded by, like they're often, he says a lot of times they're often the only black person in their entire room, like in the quarterback room, there's not any more black quarterback coaches. There's probably not another black quarterback on the roster. They are oftentimes by themselves. And so that's really the root of the issue, but he also speaks about why quarterbacks are perceived or black quarterbacks are perceived differently than white quarterbacks. And, you know, like you said, a lot of it has to do with the stereotypes that they have to come out with just coming out of college, like Dwayne Haskins. Like it's, it's so ridiculous. Like the guy was not even a running quarterback in the slightest, but because he's black, he comes out of college with this expectation almost that he is mobile. And maybe that's part of why he doesn't get another, he hasn't, you know, really gotten another chance in Washington is because, you know, I'm sure Washington knows that he's not a running quarterback, but he is black and the thing, one of the things that he does lack is mobility. So I'm not sure whether that does him any favors, but it definitely does speak towards sort of the stereotypes that black quarterbacks have to deal with. Dwayne Haskins is not a dual threat quarterback, and Josh Allen is not surprisingly athletic. No, right. he's athletic. Right. He, he's he's a tall he's a tall, stocky white dude who is just fast as all can be. There we this. You, we we just get so caught up in these these old stereotypes that we're we're almost unable to to look past you know these these traditional forms of judgment and you know whenever you look at Lamar's stats he's not going to he's not going to blow you away with his overall passing numbers because he's just not going to have those passing numbers you have to judge him on different on different you have to you have to judge him by different standards because he's not going to drop back and he's not going to throw the ball 50 times in a game. He's going to throw a lot of run pass options. He's going to take an occasional shot down the field and they're going to pound, pound, pound the ball using a ton of read options. Yep. And you're absolutely right. And I'm so glad that we had this conversation this week, especially just because like I said, the Quincy Avery interview that began or that, that you're going to listen to at the beginning of the show is all about how black quarterbacks are perceived differently in the media. Uh, but, you know, like I said, that was a really good discussion that we had over the NFL and also about the Longhorns. And I will I'll definitely be looking forward to the conversation that we can have next week. But for now, thank you guys for listening to the Sports Walk with Brad and Steven. And we'll see you guys next Wednesday at 2 p.m. on KBRX.